Abraham is our theme for this this morning and we are really looking at people who in the scriptures were particularly noted because they were they were Israel type people they were friends of Israel and the record of scripture has portrayed them as such it's quite a variant uh, selection of different folk in the Old Testament that have that signification that they were really the people of the hope of Israel and of course the first one of those has got to be uh, Abraham doesn't it? Abraham was very special in the record of scripture the record that has given us his story as a matter of fact in uh, Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is giving an account of Israel's history he says as he opens that story he says the God of glory it's only the second time it's used in the Bible but what's he going to do he's going to relay the history of Israel and when he did it he said the God of glory spoke to our father Abraham what a very significant opening that was he was going to really tell the beginning of the hope of Israel wasn't he you remember his speech and how he was showing all of the historical things that led up to Christ and to introduce that he called it the God of glories so the God of glory was the one who revealed himself in glory to a people it had not been so before to a people but there were many chapters in that long story where God did show his glory his glory was seen so it's quite a thrilling thought to think that when we come back to Genesis chapter 12 our reading for this morning we are really beginning the story of the hope of Israel because that's where it all began before Genesis chapter 12 there was no nation of Israel there was no story about Israel it was the, the opening of the story and of course we know that it's uh, begins in Genesis chapter 11 where Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his son's son and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan they came unto Haran and dwelt there in the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran would we speak of Abraham as God's friend because he's more than any other person he's described that way in the Bible Abraham my friend well we find the first well-known record of this in the second of Chronicles 
chapter 20. And there it is in verse 7. The king involved is King Jehoshaphat. He's alarmed at the accumulation of nations that are contrary to Israel coming against Israel. There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazleton, Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek Yahweh and proclaim the fast, etc. And when that uh, prayer that he made to God at that time, he says this, Art thou not our God, our God? who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to thy seed of Abraham thy friend forever. The nations that were coming against Jehoshaphat's kingdom were nations that were related to the history of Israel, but they weren't Israel. So pertinently, Jehoshaphat, in speaking to God, says, they drove out the Canaanites, or the inhabitants of this land, before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend. There was a special relationship that God had with a nation, and that nation was Israel. It was not those that were now coming against Israel, and so God, has, as it were, is reminded of that by Jehoshaphat. The relationship might be something with those nations, but with Israel, it was Israel, my friend. That's a very pertinent reference. And there's others too in, in the book of James, and another in Isaiah chapter 41. What then is the significance of a friend? Well, Jesus says a friend is someone that you can speak to about things. That you, know, that you know and love and he understands, he comprehends what you're saying. That's a friend. Abraham was a friend of God. It is really quite an astonishing thing to, to take that into our minds and think, well, I, I do enjoy the, the detail about Abraham, but Abraham, a man, a friend, of the Almighty God. It's a very special designation that he has given. And so uh, in our first uh, section here this morning we are dealing with the call of Abraham. You know of course that he came from Ur of the Chaldees which was about two and a half thousand kilometers away from where he would eventually find his piece of land under God's guidance. The Chaldees was the other side of the land, great massive land that is basically Arabia. And he was on one side of that. And he had to come all the way up the, uh, the river Euphrates, or through track up through that way, to come to the land that God was going to call him to really is a very remarkable uh, consideration. We know it because we learned it at Sunday school. 
it's become to us perhaps a bit too familiar. We don't see just how significant it is that God called a man from way, way down there, long, long away from where he's going to eventually give him his land. Ur has actually been discovered. It's in a town that's found in what's called the Chaldees. And the archaeologists over the last hundred years or so have uh, spent quite a lot of time uh, confirming the details of that city and very interesting it is to uh, record them. In chapter 12 then of Genesis we have God's first words recorded to him. Now Yahweh had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And then there follows a section down to verse 7, which is really quite a remarkable piece of scripture. But it begins with a statement of seven aspects of the story of the hope of Israel. I know that we know these almost that we could recite them off, but when you take a look at them as a series together, it really is an astonishing thing that God is doing with a man. Yahweh had said unto Abel, Leave your people, thy country, or your family, your kindred, from thy father's house unto a land that I will show them. That's the first thing. That was a huge thing to say, wasn't it? To Abraham. He's on one side of the land mass, and he's being told that he's going to be taken away from all of those people. And verse 2 then says, I will make of thee a great nation. Goodness me. What relationship did Abraham have with God then before he left? It was a tremendous sacrifice that he was asked to make. It tells us it's a land that God would show him. It tells us in verse 2, verse 1, unto a land that I will show thee. It's a divinely chosen piece of land miles away. Abraham's never seen the place, never dreamt of the place. But that was God's choice. It really is astonishing when you think about it, isn't it? A land that I shall show thee. God's choice. And then this single man standing and listening to God hears these words. I'll make of thee a great nation. He didn't have a child. He's promised that he would be made into a great nation. And he gives some of the detail of that. It's just astonishing. God talking to a man like this. I will bless thee. A lot of inhabitants in the world. I will bless thee. Make thy name great. What did Abraham feel like when he heard all these things? 
What do you measure this in any way? Make thy name great? I'm just Abraham. Then thou shalt be a blessing. Not only will I bless you, but you will be a blessing to other people. Astonishing comments. Furthermore, I will bless them that bless thee. The degree of selection and cherishment of that man, of appreciation of that man, is just astonishing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that bless that uh, curseth thee. And furthermore, in a large chunk of understanding, he says, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now fancy men standing there, and the, the living God saying to him, I will bless all nations through you. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Well, my dear brothers and sisters, obviously there had been nothing quite like that in the, in the world before. Nothing heard like that. Abraham was 75 years of age, it tells us in verse 4. So Abraham departed as Yahweh had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed to go from, to um, to Ur to find uh, to find his way from Ur and find his way to this promised land that God was promising him. Verse five tells us about his wife and uh, his other companion that went with him, Lot, his brother's son, his nephew. And here's the land. Verse 5, Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. He has made his way right across that, uh, well, it's the whole length, really, of the river Euphrates, and then he came to Haran, which was close by the river Euphrates. And they were obviously in Haran for quite some time. Then it tells us that they had gotten souls and substance in Haran. Indeed, Haran was like a, a depot before he should step into the land. Then it says, and there's quite a, a certainty about the way it's recorded, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. It was a remarkable thing, wasn't it? This man from way up there in the eastern country has been brought with with very little but made considerable substance that they had gathered and it then says in verse 6 and Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sycamore, Shechem 
unto the plain of Moray, and the Canaanite was then in the land. So the land wasn't empty, was it? The Canaanite was then in the land. It was not some piece of country that was not preoccupied. It had a name, the land of Canaan, and they came in it in a very deliberate mood, into verse 5. And he passed through the land, the land, it's already got its uh, special designation, unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Moray, and the Canaanite was then in the land. So he wasn't just walking into a vacuum. This land was going to have to be won by him if indeed it was going to be his land. And then in verse 7, it shows us just how dependent he was upon the God who had given him these promises. That God and what he has said is the essence of his mind. And Yahweh responds to that very beautifully. And it says, Yahweh appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto Yahweh who appeared unto him. All that's been building up, God has been aware of that. Abraham has responded to this remarkable opportunity that he's been given, like no other man ever heard in their life. He's responded, he's come, he's developed, he's grown, a little group are confirming their interests in the land and their numbers, despite the fact there's people around and God is aware of all of that. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. That would have been a wonderful comfort to a man that had been working, working every way possible. And then he realizes that the God that spoke to him way back there in earth is the God that is speaking to him now here in uh, the plain of Moreland in Shechem. Unto thy seed, unto thy seed, will I give this land? Why does it say unto Abraham? That, my dear brothers and sisters, is just part of the, the remarkable size of this subject. It is the seed of Abraham that will be the ultimate occupier of the land of Canaan. That detail it might seem because it's a long way off before Christ comes, 2,000 years. But that is how it's put to Abram as he's listening to what God is saying. He hasn't got a seed. He's simply Abram. The best he's got is a nephew. He has no seed. So that would have run with him. He'd been married many years. But he didn't have a child. What an amazing thing God said, Under thy seed will I give this land. Now, of course, that's going to have its application to the many children that did come, the Jewish 
people that came from that. But the key representation of that, as in the New Testament itself, is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we are in this land of Canaan, foreigners a little while ago, and now we've been told that we're going to have a child or children, and that child or children, that child is going to be the one that inhabits. That comes before all the rest. Abraham wants children, he wants family, but God says, my son will come first in the ownership of that land. You know how much here in the system? How many hundred times have you read verse 7? That's right, and so on. But I've never seen it that kind of force. Abraham would have gone home and thought and thought and thought about that because he so desperately wanted a family. And that would be the case in the next 25 years. And he would have thought, what is God actually saying to me here? And he removed then, verse 8, from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And you know what he did? He built. But it wasn't something for himself. He wasn't settling. He built an altar. It says that in verse 7 as well. He built him an altar unto Yahweh who appeared. He built the altar because God did appear to him, reassuringly. Wonderful promises. How could we not re respond by appealing unto God? So to recognise that, he did what he seems to do a lot of. He built an altar unto Yahweh. Somewhere where he could feel that he was in touch with God because it was a habit around that building, that simple structure. Now we found the second one already. In verse 7, built it here an altar. And he removed from thence, verse 8, unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. He's still in his tent. Having Bethel on the west, Aion on the east, and there he builded an altar unto Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. Amazing promises. Amazing abilities, amazing already, amazing achievements and to him is the thing for which he must go back to his God that has brought such wonderful promises to fulfilment and promise much more in the future. And then it says to Abraham that he journeyed going on still toward the south. That means he's going towards Egypt. Well, he has to keep going too, because verse 10, there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. I never criticise a person who leaves the country because they're starving. <laughs> you can't just stand there, can you? Joseph did the same thing. You couldn't just stand there and do nothing. That's your responsibility, I would have thought. Well, here's a man that's in touch with God absolutely, frequently building altars to him. 
He doesn't say, I'm stopping here no matter what. There was a famine, and below in the south in Egypt, there was food. And it simply says, Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. It wasn't his intention to stay there, but if there is food there, then I will seek that food there. I wouldn't criticise him for that. He had a lot of people to look after. You can't look after a lot of people, we can't do the right thing by them. If you refuse to take food where you know that it is opportune. But what is interesting is that this famine came. God's the one that controls famine. Abram's in a, a new enterprise and uh, lo and behold the area is struck with famine. Such depth of famine that he has to go south to Egypt where, where the, there is plenty of food and it's known that that's the case. But he's got a problem as he gets closer and closer to the border of Egypt because his wife Sarai, she's not a, a usual woman, she said it. She's a very, very outstanding woman in her beauty. And as Abraham's trotting along, thinking about the future, he thinks, when I get to Egypt, these Egyptians, I know what they're like. They put their eyes on her, and I've got a problem. They wouldn't see me so much as a problem because to obtain her, they need to get rid of me. He thinks, well, if I say that she's my sister, then they will spare her and they will spare me. So <laughs> Abraham's not without a few ideas about how to get out of a deep problem, that's his solution. And his wife actually went along with it. Now I hear people criticise him again for that. He should have stayed with her. He shouldn't make her the, the scapegoat. He should, as a man, rest his, uh, his shoulders and take responsibility of this situation. Oh yeah, against Pharaoh? Pharaoh's the greatest man in the world. They're going to treat him just like just like any other man. And he knows that. But my dear brothers and sisters, Abraham has to live as well, doesn't he? He's been made promises that involve a seed. His life has to go on. It's not a matter of uh, him going on and leaving her though. So he says, you say that you're my sister. Because if you say you're my wife, they'll get rid of me and they'll go for you. <laughs> this is a very interesting part of scripture. Came to pass when he was coming here to enter into Egypt, that he, he whispered this to his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. I think that's rather a quaint little comment that you are and I discovered the person I married that she was a fair woman to look on fairly early <laughs> down the track. They've been married for years. And he, he then sort of passes the little comment on to her. I, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. I hope that Abraham had told 
that a few times before. I'm sure you had. She in fact was a stunning, beautiful woman. Unusually so. If it should come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will save thee alone. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. He knew that he had to live, didn't he? Because God had told him. And what's more, that was God's purpose. It was much larger than the issue just of you know, a man being married or a man having a wife. This was a special seed that had been denoted by God. And therefore, Abraham knows that he has to live on. He's got to get out of the predicament that he's in. They need food, got to go to Egypt. There's nowhere else to go. All right. But when he gets there, he can see this other problem is in front of him. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake. Well, it turned out very much like what Abraham thought. You take the power of verse 14. It came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, listening, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. That's the comment made. When she hit the streets of the capital of, of Egypt, what people talked about was not the vessel that they came in or the, the vehicle that they came in or how many of them there was or who's the dad around here, who's the father of that. What people were saying one to another, and they would of course be the aristocracy that even got a look in, was her beauty. She must have been exceptional, beautiful. It stopped the traffic in Egypt. Behold the woman, she was very fair. And uh, this became known then to the upper Christ class in verse 15. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. You might have thought, well, perhaps they'll get in and try and make themselves a date or they wouldn't dare do that, would they? If Pharaoh got to know this particularly beautiful woman had come and that one of his princes had sort of run off with her for a tate-a-tate. Tate. Then look out for the life of that man. He's not going to stand in front of Pharaoh and they would know that. So they told him and commended her before Pharaoh. He'll be after her. That's what they did. They looked for the prettiest woman they could. It was the rule of of regency in those days. And this one, our Sarah, was apparently very, very beautiful. So the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Oh, that must have grieved Abraham when he heard about that. But he couldn't follow, could he? That would upset the whole of his plot. He had to watch his wife go into the company of this very carnal group of people and uh, Pharaoh sort of gleaming all over her 
she went into his house. That was a very grievous moment right there. But I say again, the great part of this story is not Abraham. The great part is the promise that God has made through the seed of Abraham. His life has to be perpetual. She's going in there, but somehow he knows God will make this work. But he must have been a very distraught and worried man. And Pharaoh entreated Abraham well for her sake. He just went completely off, her, off the end. It says he had sheep and oxen and asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. He entreated Abram. He made Abram wealthy by many gifts. I've never seen that quite so clearly as that. That's what it's saying. He would give Abraham anything he loved. Those things that are mentioned are the things that were his tool to trade, so to speak. That's what he was involved in. Pharaoh went out of his way day by day, month by month, year by year to entreat Abraham because he wanted this lady that he thought was his wife. He thought was uh, his uh, sister. Well, what an intriguing thing that is. As people watch that happen. Who's actually benefiting? becomes more and more interesting as we go down. But this is the, the phrase that is the key phrase. Verse 17, and Yahweh plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now just note that with your, your special pencil. Pharaoh's inactive. That's what that means. He's very ill. And he's been very ill for a long time. And whilst he would have no doubt wanted to step forward and take this new lady that's coming to the palace, he can't because he's very ill. And what's more, the plague is not just something ordinary. It says, Yahweh plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. The royal house of Egypt is shut down effectively because of Yahweh, Abram's God, who has brought that plague on and they're not able to do what would normally be done. And yet the king, so much does he want that girl that he's loading up Abraham with all these things. So the king's getting poor and Abraham's getting richer. And Sarai is a question mark. But the king can't do a thing about it because he's just physically not in it. And so that was with all of his household. Now, my dear brothers, I've never put that into the story before. I've never seen it like that. But when you do it, it all opens up, doesn't it? Pharaoh called Abraham after some time and he wasn't happy. He was sullen. He called Abram and said, 
What is this that thou hast done unto me? Can a man do that? You won't fasten, you won't face the music, will you? This is not a man's doings. Pharaoh called Abram, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? My dear brothers and sisters, Pharaoh's playing games. He knows now that it is his wife. But rather than open up to the fact that he knew that, and he couldn't do something now against Abraham, could he? The levels have changed. He now is trying to blame Abraham for this, which was recast only because of his intruding manners and bringing that girl into his house. Now he wants to unload the responsibility that on top of Abraham, and he knows why Abraham did it. The message is out. Pharaoh doesn't take the responsibility. What was he doing? Fooling around with a girl that was brought into the city like this. He's, he's, the, he's the king of the place. He's probably got another 20 of them somewhere. But in a cowardly way, he turns on Abraham that he'd been sharing with all these goods. He now turns on him and says, Why saidst thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to be wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And that's how it was said. And so he's dismissed out of Egypt. But Pharaoh won't let go. He's still in the action. Pharaoh commanded his men. Doesn't say he said to one of the soldiers, just just get that that man that's come in with a, with this uh, Sarai's uh, husband. Just just get him out of the land, would you? He didn't do that. Pharaoh made sure that the thing was done. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Thanks. All that booty that he's got out in the back paddocks there. All the items of verse 16, they go too. And Pharaoh doesn't do a thing. He's learned a lesson. There's something working in this story that's greater than him. And you know, the record is lovely. So many people criticise Abraham for this. They say he wasn't manly, he should have shouldered up. He should not let his wife be bossed around or something like this. But verse 17 is the key. And Yahweh plagued Pharaoh. That's who was behind it. And that's why Abraham does nothing during that time. He's got a huge number of people to already go after. But now he's got much more. And he's got his dear wife back at his side as well. And Pharaoh is biting at the chain. But he's the carnal person that made an approach to a woman that was none of his business. Got himself in a tremendous problem, tried to pay, pay himself out, and now he's having a go at Abraham. Abraham's response, not a word. 
It's a beautiful record, isn't it? If we actually read it like it comes. And Abram went up out of Egypt. He, I love this phrase, can you uh, affectionately describe this in your own, own way? And his wife, he loved her. She's back with him out of that wretched house of Pharaoh that he always was worried about what might or could be going on in there. He's got his wife by his son. And Pharaoh is not too well. He's very, in fact, he's, he's furiously mad. <laughs> he's been outclassed by the forces that are working with uh, Abraham. He and his wife and all that he had, and Lot too, was with him. And they went into the south, that is the south of the promised land, out of Egypt. And then tells us that Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold. Notice the gold, that wasn't in verse 16 of the previous chapter, was it? But it's here because it seems that he had added that to the list of items. Abraham went out a very wealthy man. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent, he didn't need palaces, his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. And that takes us all back to chapter 12, verse 8. He removed from thence unto a mountain, pitched his tent, and there he built an altar and called upon the name of Yahweh. He's gone down into Egypt, he's had all these heart-wrenching experiences, but he's come out a man deeply enriched by the experience and wonderfully devoted to the God that has saved him, his wife and his people Lot as well. And he says in verse 4, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, chapter 12, verse 8. And there Abram called on the name of Yahweh. No wonder. What an experience that was. It does say in verse 5 that Lot's present. We haven't heard a lot about Lot ever till this point. But Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. A two very large accumulation of animal goods. And he was, was with tents as well. Living Abraham's life. Flocks, herds, tents. And the land was not able to bear them. They're both increasing in numbers. There must be years involved in verse 5 and 6 months, but you can't develop stock as quickly as that. For their substance, it says in verse 6, was great, both of them, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. So the People that were in charge of these large herds 
They were having a dispute among themselves as to who's the greatest among them. And the Herman of Lot's cattle and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. It's not a place to be having an argument. You've got people outside that are not friendly. And if you divide up between yourselves, then what's going to happen? Now I think that Abram, this shows his qualities here, doesn't it? Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Hard for the two principles to be in good company with each other when their workmen are having roused between themselves. But Abram's magnanimity in, in this matter is just, just wonderful. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Had Lot been promised the land? No. But Abraham's already prepared to proportion off that which God has promised him. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then, okay, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered, rich, luxurious piece of ground, well watered everywhere before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which will come up soon, as the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoe. That first area she come into Egypt was exceptionally profitable. Sodom and Gomorrah was like that. It's just now a place of archaeologists and dust and holes. But apparently that whole area was extremely wealthy, extremely rich. And when Lot, a man of the farm, saw that, he just thought, I can't really not choose that. It's a gorgeous piece of land. And so he took that never mind the costs to his relationship with his uh, uncle. So my dear brothers and sisters, we'll continue that story tomorrow. Thank you.